You're right if I drink coffee through the course of our conversation, or would you prefer yeah. that I not? We prefer that you do drink coffee. We all, <laughs> all, right. all of us drink coffee. <laughs> Energy is good. <laughs> Welcome to Biomechanics on Our Minds. My name is Melissa Boswell. And I'm Hannah O'Day, and we're PhD students at Stanford University. This podcast is brought to you by the International Society of Biomechanics. It's, it's time, time for, for Boom. Boom. Welcome to Boom. We have Biomechanics on our minds. Boom. 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 Welcome back to Boom. I'm Hannah. And I'm Melissa. And we are on episode 42, which is perfect because we are also here to celebrate the Summer Olympic Games, which have 42 sports. Ooh, fun fact. Thanks, Hannah. <laughs> it's also 42 is the secret to life, the universe, and happiness, according to the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's a, it's a big day, it's then. It's a big day. <laughs> uh, today, it is a big day because we got to talk with Scott Rewald, who is the Senior Director of High Performance Projects on the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And it was a really amazing conversation. He had a lot of good advice. Even though we had some technical difficulties, the episode came out. It came out all right. <laughs> After some serious editing, we pulled it together. <laughs> Melissa's the MVP on this one. <laughs> but before we go to our episode, let's do a bit of boom. 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 I thought since we talked about swimming biomechanics with Scott, we could do a little bit of swimming boom. So the publication I wanted to talk about was published in Sports Biomechanics in May 2021 by Image and Shepard and colleagues, and they looked at the effects of body position and mass center velocity at toe-off on the start performance of elite swimmers and how this differs between genders. Wait, there's a toe-off in swimming? Yeah, so right when you're starting off the blocks, right? Oh. And you push off, so there's also a toe-off. Wow. Yeah. And so they recorded 24 elite swimmers race pace starts with above and below water cameras, and they calculated body position like joint angles and to the two-dimensional mass center position at toe-off. So like we said, so as the swimmers are leaving the block. And they found that the starting speed or their performance differed between genders, but body positions did not differ. So hmm. instead, the difference in performance was mainly due to a difference in horizontal velocity at toe-off. My cat. <laughs> My cat is really excited about this bit of boom. The trunk angle in particular was correlated to starting performance for both males and females. And the swimmers also showed a variety of different arm angles, but those didn't seem to be related to performance. So that might need further investigation. Basically, the body position at toe-off is no difference between genders, but it's a critical determinant of starting performance for both males and females. So you want to start off right. Yes. No matter exactly. what gender you are. Exactly. Exactly. You want to start off on the right foot or the right foot. The right leading. toe. The right toe. The right toe off. Um, and I need to look into biomechanics of flip turn performance next because that was oh. an area I really could have used some work on as a swimmer. Flip turning scary. Flip turning can be scary. I was also scared to just like put my face in the water when I started, but luckily Same. the more I kept going um, <laughs> on the swim team, they wouldn't have that. They didn't let you swim without putting your face in the water. <laughs> they made me swim with my head down. So, <laughs> Well, thanks for that bit of boom, Melissa. I feel like I always learn something new. And swimming is one of my favorite events to watch in 
the Olympics. So I'll definitely be thinking about Toph and watching the swimmers different body positions as they're on the blocks. Yeah, yeah, me too. It brings in like a whole new perspective. A whole new perspective. I bet. I wonder if we can predict who's gonna win just based on their starting. Um, Well, let's get on to Scott's interview now, where he shares some really great insights on how we can work with coaches and athletes to share biomechanics insights like these in a way that's effective and impactful for sports performance. All right. Well, we are back on Boom. We're here with Scott Rewald, who is the Senior Director of High Performance Projects on the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. We are so excited to have you here. Thanks for being with us. No, this is great. Thank you for the invitation to sit down and talk with you. This is exciting. Yeah, it's been fun getting to know you as we've been preparing for this interview. But one question we haven't gotten to yet is when you first knew that you wanted to be a biomechanist. When did I know I wanted to be a biomechanist? So that's a, that's a good question. Um, so I guess it's been an evolution of, of thought from when I was a, a kid and going, going through um, college and, and graduate school. I was an athlete and I swam um, competitively through high school and actually college. And um, so sport has always been a part of my, a part of my life. I, I liked the sciences. I liked math. I did well in them in, in high school. And it kind of drew me to this field that was at the time relatively young and unknown biomedical engineering and it kind of combined the worlds of of engineering biology and human performance together in a way that i had never really thought of before so when i went to undergraduate at boston university i had opportunities to get exposed to kind of how all these pieces fit and really um, learned a lot about the the body and kind of how it works and neuromuscular work. And I really kind of latched on to this idea of, of biomechanics. Um, and it, that kind of thinking continued into my graduate work at Northwestern, where I had the opportunity to study under the direction of, of Dr. Delp. Um, and we just really dug into dug into the biomechanics of movement. And then the work that I was doing as a, as a graduate student, it was in populations of kids with cerebral palsy, adults with stroke. I never, even at that point in time in the, in the mid nineties knew that there was such a thing as kind of sport biomechanics. And again, it's Mm. doesn't seem that long ago, but in terms of like the, the um, prevalence of sport biomechanics and exercise science programs, there just wasn't great exposure about that. And, um, but had an opportunity there to yeah. kind of get a glimpse into the world of sport and biomechanics. Um, and that really changed my, my trajectory from kind of more of a clinical world and a clinical application of biomechanics to working with athletes and then working with athletes in elite sport as well. So um, I guess it grew out of a love for sport. It grew out of a love for science and really trying to understand, bringing that engineering perspective to wanting to know how things work. It's so interesting that so many people grow up playing sports, right? And I mean, since we're born, we're moving. And then in high school, I think, or is usually when people are get a better idea if they like science and math. But it, I feel like the connection together, applying those to the body and movement, like it doesn't really happen until undergrad, at least through our experience. But um, which I think is interesting. Like, I think if we 
applied science and math, the things that we cared about a lot in high school or middle school, it might make more sense to us. And um, anyway, I just, yeah, that just came to mind, but it's interesting to hear your, your story through that. And also your evolution where it didn't start in sports biomechanics, but in more musculoskeletal disorders and then Mm -hmm. kind of circling back to your passion in sports. Yeah. But um, Melissa, I want to maybe like comment on something that you just said, and uh, I think it presents a a great opportunity because you're right. Like sometimes those connections between different things, like from, as you stated, and as I stated, like sport and then science and sport and biomechanics or even sport and health, you don't start to make those connections until later in life. But it's I think there's also a tremendous opportunity and you see this being done more and more, but in fits and spurts, different places of like really taking opportunities to kind of embark on STEM programs or education. And even if it's um, an opportunity to get in front of kind of high school students or, or younger individuals and just help to build those connections when your brain might not be necessarily thinking along those lines at that point in, in time, because I've seen it open doors for um, individuals or a light go on and say, holy cow, I never really kind yeah. of put those things together. And this is actually really cool. And um, and you make that connection in high school, for example, rather than kind of it coming in, in undergrad or, or in graduate school. So I think it really provides an opportunity in the, the, the landscape is, is ripe for those type of engagements with younger individuals interested in science and interested in, in how the body moves and performs. Yeah, we're talking about exposure. You mentioned like not even having exposure to sort of this type of field or work when you were growing up and as you were going through school. And even I feel like I'm constantly being exposed to different things. Like, I don't know why I even being part of the biomechanics field, I didn't even think about the Olympic Committee and how you know, that could play into biomechanics. And so I'm wondering if you ever imagined that you were going to be part of the Olympic Committee, um, or if that was ever on your radar, you said sports sort of became an interest later on. Um, So what was it like transitioning from those different focuses? Yeah, no, thanks for the question. Yeah, I think my involvement in sport and kind of even the understanding of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee now kind of came around through serendipity, I guess is the best way that I can I can describe it. I was in the middle of doing graduate work at, at Northwestern and kind of we hit a bump in the road where kind of a path that we were projecting kind of my my dissertation and my, my thesis going down kind of hit a, a, a roadblock and forced me to kind of back up and re- evaluate what I wanted to do and what I wanted to accomplish in graduate school. And at the same time, I decided that really to think about what it is that I wanted to do holistically in my life and take a break from graduate school for a year. Mm -hmm. And it just so happened that the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee at that time offered internships or one-year research assistantships within their sports science department. Again, had no idea at that point in time that like sport biomechanics was a thing. Everything that I had done up to that time was really academics focused and on those population of individuals that were dealing with biomechanics is important, but it was cerebral palsy. It was um, it was stroke. So I threw my name in the hat to apply for one of these positions and was lucky enough to get it. And so I got this exposure to a whole new world of biomechanics that I hadn't had exposure to before. And it gave me a year to kind of live in that environment, 
work with coaches, work with athletes, see how kind of what we were learning about in, in classes could actually be applied out in the, in the real world, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and it changed my, my trajectory and my career trajectory. Yeah. At, from that point, from that point forward. So, um, came back to graduate school and then kind of finished up my, my degree. But at that point, then it was going to be all sport if I had anything to do with it. And yeah, it's been a great road ever since. Right. Really, it stands out how you say that you just wanted to take a year to kind of figure out, you know, what was meaningful to you or what direction you wanted to move in. And then this opportunity presented itself. But then you had to take that step to actually apply and go for it. And it's funny how, how those things happen sometimes and work out that way. But I'm really curious when you're saying you're taking what you're learning in the classroom and applying it and working with athletes and coaches. What what does that look like uh, as a biomechanist and, and applying biomechanics in this like elite athletic setting? Maybe how it did when you did that first internship and how has that like evolved in into your current role? I guess the biggest lesson, biggest learning that I took from my whole experience in transitioning from kind of the academic world, and I'm going to Sorry, it may not be the right terminology, but I'm going to use it anyway, but into the applied world <laughs> of how to like actually take what it is that you're learning in lectures and use it to impact a change in someone's life is that you need to do a lot of listening mm-hmm. and you need to do a lot of consider it like checking your ego at the door, mm-hmm. myself included, but I've seen a lot of others come in as like, I have all this great stuff that I've learned throughout my career. I've got a PhD and in biomechanics, I can help you. And I can help you as a coach make your athletes better. I know I can help these athletes get better in their technique. But oftentimes, that's not what someone's looking for, at least right out of the gate. So taking the time to kind of sit and understand what are the questions that the coach is struggling with, where your expertise and your knowledge may be able to assist them. What are the things that athletes are looking for and ways that they're, the questions that they're asking. Mm. And if you can meet that need, and it may seem ridiculously simple in the grand scheme of things. I want to know how fast I'm going Mm. through this portion of a 400 meter race, or what is the angle that I'm releasing the shot put with? I mean, Again, fundamentally basic in terms of stuff that you probably learn in in high school physics. But those are some of the questions that, that people are asking. And being able to answer those questions opens the door to then maybe insert yourself and bring ideas to the table that will help to progress and kind of answer increasingly more in depth and more complicated questions that delve deeper into those factors that impact athlete health and performance. One of the things that I've, I've noticed is that every coach has an idea of what proper technique looks like. And when you're talking biomechanics, a lot of times you're talking about technique and how you're performing a specific exercise. And so they have this model in their mind of like what a good hurdle looks like, what a good sprinting mechanics look like, what, I mean, fill in the blank, what a good kind of position during a gymnastics fault is. They're not interested in someone coming in and telling them the eight ways or the 10 ways in which their model is incorrect, okay? And that's, I think, what I've seen a lot of people do, including myself. I'm, I'm guilty of this, coming in and saying, here's all the things that can be done to help make things better. Now, if you take a step back and you put yourselves in their shoes, it's real easy to, mm. the message that you hear is like, 
here are the 10 things that you're doing wrong as a coach mm. that there's no better way or no quicker way to kind of closing the door and having and being able to have an impact <laughs> than coming with that approach. You need a seat at the table in order to have an impact. Mm. Um, so getting that seat and then kind of using it to kind of grow the conversation is really the most important thing. And I guess that's been the, the main takeaway that I've, I've had in my, my career is stop and listen and really understand what's being asked before you kind of come forward with solutions. I think that's so important. And I, we saw you do that with us, even when we had reached out to you to do this interview, you said, Hey, can we just meet really quick? I just want to get on the same page, figure out what you're doing, what you want from me, how can I best serve you? And I really think that we appreciated that hugely and immensely and saw you demonstrate that so professionally and so thoughtfully. So it seems like you've mastered that art. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you never master it, right? It's one of those things that you can perpetually and continually get better at. Yeah, it's something that, again, wasn't necessarily inherently obvious. It is now, but inherently obvious to me coming out of graduate school and starting to work with coaches and athletes for the first time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, those are the things that we don't always get taught in courses, even in graduate school. But mm -hmm. it's amazing to be able to learn from those who have, you know, learned those experiences. Although sometimes it doesn't even really click until you're like in that position and, you know, make that mistake yourself. But those are really great insights. And I'm also curious when you're talking about answering these questions, what that looks like. So I know you work with swimmers and that has to be one of the most difficult sports to measure the movement of, right? And I'm <laughs> curious what types of techniques and technologies you're using to help improve the biomechanics or movement of the, the swimmers that you work with. Yeah, my work with the U.S. swim team now isn't what it used to be. My mm. first job coming out of graduate school was working as the biomechanics director for USA Swimming. So I can kind of go back a few years and, and talk about some of the things that we did there. But more recently, my work has been focused on the winter sport teams and then the last two years on the integration of technology and then data and analytics into the support that we're trying to provide mm. to the various sport national governing bodies or NGBs, if you hear me use that terminology in the summer and winter, as well as the Paralympic side of things. But um, back when I worked at USA Swimming, in terms of the biomechanical kind of analysis, a lot of things, and you still see this, are, are video-based in terms of recording video of different technique, doing some analysis, some 3D motion digitization to understand the, the kinematics and then infer in some cases, in other cases, measure the kinetics um, and the forces that are being generated during the execution of those, those strokes and the technique that the athletes are using. We had some unique tools at USA Swimming at the time. We had a, a flume, which essentially is a swimming treadmill, a big pump system with a with a swimming chamber Whoa. where we could instrument with cameras and control the speed of the water as the athlete swam in place um, as the water flowed past them. So that was a useful tool in being able to keep an athlete in a consistent position, be able to mount one camera to underwater or above water to be able to record their, their technique. And then we also had the ability to instrument the setup with load cells and force sensors, for example. I mean, like propulsion and the forces that a, a swimmer are generating as well as the drag forces that they're experiencing, they balance out and ultimately determine the speed that an athlete or a swimmer is able to achieve in the water. And so 
our goals would be to evaluate and look for ways that we can improve the propulsive force that an athlete could generate. And a lot of times that would look at kind of positioning of the hands or the feet and estimating or measuring the forces that were generated there. But equally, how can you reduce drag? Mm. And we would oftentimes instrument with a load cell and have an athlete be in the loom and kind of in a passive position and look at how different changes in body position, whether it was a head position or something related to the body, impacted the amount of force or resistance that they experienced in the water. And so those were all useful tools and provided real concrete data. But then again, we're challenged with the fact that a flume is a simulated environment. It's not real world. And more and more, we then tried to transition the tools that were being used to evaluate athletes and their techniques over to the actual pool. So camera systems that could move at the pace and self-pace off of the athletes in the water to get better views of the of the athlete, synchronous views of an athlete from the side, from the front, above, um, give a better understanding of the of the athlete's technique and the kinematics of their movement. Mm-hmm. One of my colleagues developed a system in which it was essentially a, a tether. You would tie, put a belt on the athlete and tie it to a, a thin fishing line filament. Like and a leash. swam down the pool, <laughs> like a leash. But you started to kind of then get into the the dynamics of how fast or what the speed of an athlete was at various points during the execution of a of a stroke cycle. And you could see where how speed fluctuated and how speed changed based on differences or tweaks in technique or body position that an athlete might make. And so really trying to put tools into the hands of the coaches and the athletes that help mm. inform decisions and inform coaching in the moment. Right. And so you see like what you do in one 50 meter swim, make some corrections, look at the video, look at the information that came off of some of the the technology that you're monitoring performance with and then trying again and seeing if you can if you can improve. That was where things really became impactful. So those are a couple of examples. We also I think we were some of the first in the world, although I don't want to necessarily make that claim inaccurately, but start to use computational fluid dynamics as a tool to help mm. like evaluate and understand um, the forces and the dynamics of an athlete's movement in a simulated environment. At the time, there wasn't a lot that you could do an actual kind of on-body measurement of athletes. So one of the things that you could do, though, was create a model within a computerized environment run it through various hand positions, arm positions, body positions, and see what impact that had on some of those forces and the resistance that was being generated. And so take kind of a thousand different opportunities and maybe whittle them down to like two or three that you would then try and implement in terms of teaching stroke technique or ways in which the athlete can minimize their their resistance in the water. So again, technology's improved even since then where there are sensors and wearables and things that you can you can track and monitor in athletes now. But those are some of the things that were being done at the time when I was working with kind of USA Swimming and really being focused on, on biomechanics back in the early 2000s. I guess one more thing that I'll say, and this goes back to fitting in and integrating with the coaches and the athletes. If you come out of the gates with computational fluid dynamics or some really high-end technology, and you start to try to present this to a coach who's never even heard of it or thought of it or doesn't know what it is that you're doing, it's not 
an effective approach, I guess I should say. You need to kind of, just like you need to build in terms of the relationship and the communication to understand questions that they're challenged with, you need to build in the integration and the introduction of new technology as well, because hitting in full force with something that's, that's really high end, while that may not work, the introduction of video and how can what can we learn from video and then taking that one step forward to all right let's let's look at kind of how video relates and combine it with some force measurements that we've we've monitored or a measurement of speed that we've been able to record and gradually build to those higher level technologies and interactions you need to i think kind of take that approach with a lot of coaches as well now i don't mean that to be an indictment of all coaches <laughs> in any way, shape, or form, because you have more and more coaches these days are very adept and knowledgeable about technology. So you may be able to come in at a higher level with certain coaches than you can with others. You need to read the room, though, and really understand, again, listen and know where coaches are in order to really guide how you most effectively engage with them, especially right out of the gate. So you've talked about reading the room and trying to sort of speak the same language between engineers, coaches, and athletes. And I'm wondering, even though, even when you can sort of get the same language down um, and go between those groups easily, I'm curious if there are times that there's still disagreements, not necessarily in language, but maybe with, with what engineers think will work versus what coaches or athletes use are feasible or want to do, if those happen and how you might be able to manage some of those disagreements. There are disagreements, maybe not disagreements, but different views on maybe how to approach or how to analyze a situation or create a solution to a, a problem or a question that a coach or an athlete has. Experience would say that the coach ultimately and the athlete ultimately have the final call and the final say mm. on kind of what path and what direction to take. It doesn't do any good to actually have a conflictual <laughs> right. relationship. Right. It's important to kind of try to get your information out and on the table for the, the coach or athlete to consider. But a lot of times you'll find that it's either not the right moment to implement that strategy, or there's some additional thinking that needs to go on for the coach, the athlete, or, or kind of the other stakeholder to become comfortable with it. It's not it's not uncommon for a sports scientist, a biomechanist, a physiologist to introduce a concept to an athlete or a coach and it not be the right time or not ready to do that yet for you to then see, maybe it's three months later, maybe it's six months later, maybe it's a year later, where that idea resurfaces. And oftentimes it's the idea of the coach now mm. and not kind of some external party. Even though you may be seen as part of the kind of performance team, you're still external to the core performance group. But when the coach comes up with the idea himself yeah. or the athlete comes up with the idea herself, it has a lot greater chance of success. And it's, it's about planting seeds. It's about watering those seeds and sometimes allowing for those, those seeds to grow for a period of time before they actually start to come to fruition. Mm. It's not uncommon in sports science and, and technology. It may seem overtly obvious to you or I that this is the way to go and there's a lot of benefit to come from this, mm -hmm. but it has to click and be meaningful to all the constituents in the room and not just you. I think as engineers, our proclivity is to kind of, oh, there's 
information and there's so much data that we can gather and we can learn everything. We can analyze this from 18 different directions and provide these 26 things back to the athletes. And, and um, that's not usually the right way to communicate or engage with an athlete. It's about finding that one thing mm. and answering that one question, providing that one piece of information. Mm. It doesn't mean that you can't collect all of that other information as long as it's not like interfering with the athlete's performance or the way that they're training. And you can be analyzing on the side, but be aware and be cognizant of really what it is that the athlete is looking for, the coach is looking for, and sometimes less is more. I know that's kind of a, a cliche, but in a lot of instances in working with athletes, it's actually the, it's actually the truth. Give less information and make sure that it's actually something that can be mm. applied and that the athlete can do something about and start there. Woven into that comment is a lot of times it's easy to give back feedback or information about an athlete's performance and some factor that they have no control over. Mm. And I'll use a simple example. Oh, height. <laughs> you could just be a little taller. <laughs> you Comparing you to kind of like the elite athletes, you have no control right. over that, right? And so really making sure that when you're giving feedback, while that may be the case, focus on things that are actually applicable and an athlete can or a coach can, can impact in some way, shape, or form. I think that makes a lot of sense. You're saying things athletes don't have control over, but maybe even things that sometimes they do have control over, but maybe they're so subtle. We think about this sometimes like what's clinically meaningful, but it, it also makes me think of like what's meaningful in this context where you're telling an athlete to move their body in some like such specific way that maybe that's not feasible or it's hard to have that awareness of your body to like move it so precisely that might be like optimal, but maybe not feasible. No, and you, and you bring up a great point. And one of the things that we really try to drive home is just the thinking about how do you approach performance improvement? And this is a question that we ask coaches, athletes, we ask ourselves, we ask the sports that oversee a given discipline is what are the most important factors that impact performance? Mm. In biomechanics, like Jim Hay did a great job of determ doing deterministic modeling of understanding how different features and factors fed into how high a high jumper jumps or how far a long jumper jumps. And through that process, you, from a biomechanical standpoint, you can understand the relative contributions that say an increase of speed of one-tenth of a meter per second could have an impact on jump distance. And that's greater than a two-degree change in the angle of takeoff. On the mm. So you can start to prioritize what's important. But the other piece that as biomechanists, we have to be aware of is that biomechanics and technique is one piece of the overall performance puzzle. Right. You see this a lot where the physiologist thinks that everything centers around physiology and the psychologist thinks mm -hmm. that everything focuses on and the most important thing in an athlete's performance is the mental state and strength and conditioning is just getting bigger, faster, stronger, <laughs> but they all work together and they all interplay. And as a biomechanist, we need to like realize that maybe the biggest impact that can influence an athlete's performance does come in the physiological area or something related to nutrition. And we need to be willing to work as part of a, an overall performance team, helping to support that athlete mm. 
and do the things that are actually going to have the biggest bang for their buck or focus on that first. And if that's not a biomechanical or a technique issue for a given athlete, be okay with that and not try to focus on incremental things when there's maybe something else out here that is more worthy of, of spending time and effort developing. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's a great point. Even though you may want, you know, your work to be the most important for an athlete or may think it is really considering what's best for them and being able to have the awareness of when it might be time to think what other things might be influencing that performance or what might be working together even with the physiology as kind of a whole too. You've given such great advice with working you know, as a biomechanist in this type of setting and some of the challenges and, and ways that you've overcome that, which has been really insightful. And I'm wondering what's been the most fun part of it? Like what's the most exciting for you in your work now? That's a really good question. And it's one that is really easy for me to, for me to answer, actually. <laughs> like I get a lot of energy and I draw a lot of fun out of the fact that we're helping somebody do things that maybe have never been done before or helping people like maximize their potential. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, it's, it's great. And it's really clear how that works in the, in sport, but I'm passionate about that in any aspect. If I was working for a company, my drill would still be to really help people grow and achieve their potential. But Having come from a sport background myself and been an athlete, sport always has a real central part in my heart. And I love being able to see somebody do something that, again, has never been done before. And knowing that maybe something that I did kind of contributed or something that our team did contributed to helping them achieve that goal. And that's really satisfying and what drives me on a day in day out basis is helping people reach their goals. So you think about it and sport, I think is a very special vehicle in and of itself in that kind of those performances and that you see an athlete achieve out on the Olympic track or in the pool or bobsled run, just how inspiring that is and how motivational that is to America and society as a whole. And so by helping that one athlete or doing something that maybe helped that one athlete and then seeing the reach that that performance has and how it can inspire kids to get involved in sport or emphasis on fitness or set a goal or realize the importance of striving to be great. Those are the real wins that come from that one athlete or that one performance that you see on TV. That's pretty cool. That is really cool. Do you take those learnings and apply them to your own life? Do you ever go for a swim and think about some of the findings you've had and try to improve your own performance? It's been a while since I've been in the pool. I spent probably too many years in the younger part of my life swimming to really get as much enjoyment out of it anymore <laughs> as, I, as I would like to. I do try to get in the pool. But to your point, though, things I know now, do I apply them to my life? Do I try to like infuse them into my kids' lives? <laughs> yes, I do. But doesn't mean that they always take. I have better luck sometimes working with other athletes than I do with my, with my own kids and in terms of instilling <laughs> high performance principles. But one of the things though that really strikes me is, so I, I call myself like a good athlete, but 
man, I never had access to like the information and the things that I know now and kind of the, the pieces of information or kind of the techniques or ways that we can interact with athletes and empower them to kind of take control of their lives and their performances, whether it's by being nutritionally healthy or focused on performance, how you approach sleep, all these things that you could say were common sense 20 years ago, mm. but you never really had great data or information or someone working with you on that across the board. Yeah. Yeah. The resources are just there and the knowledge is just there if the athletes are interested and willing to take advantage of it. And sometimes it's nice to, to actually put science to things that felt like common sense, you know what should happen, but then actually putting the science and engineering to that is also exciting. Yeah. And I, you bring up actually a good point, Melissa, and something that I'll comment on is Sometimes the science and the work that we do is done to validate that a coach is doing something the right way. And oftentimes there's mm. just not that knowledge. It's just, oh, this is how I've always coached. And it's the art of coaching. And I never want to discount the art of coaching because coaches th see things. They have this intuition. Mm. They have this approach where there's intangibles and stuff that science can't measure and may never be able to measure. But it's bringing science alongside the coach and the art of how they train an athlete that really makes something positive. And when you can kind of show and validate like something that a coach is doing with science, it just makes that coach even better and stronger in what it is that they're doing and, and strengthens that relationship between like mm. science and technology and the, and the coach and the athlete as well. That's a, that's a great situation. That sounds that like it would be really exciting for everyone and just <laughs> feel really meaningful for, for everyone. But thank you for sharing all of that. You're welcome. So one thing we like talking about on the podcast is failure or more, I guess, overcoming failure. Oh. <laughs> a reframing of failure, I guess, is what we like to talk about. So we're wondering if there's ever, if there's ever a time in your career that you felt like you had failed and what you learned from that. I guess the things that stick with me around failure are going to be the opposite side of the coin as to like what really motivates me and where I draw energy from. There's nothing worse than seeing an athlete on the sidelines crying because they didn't reach their goal or they didn't achieve a performance at the Olympics or major competition mm. that they were capable of achieving. It's not those athletes that it's just a long shot, but those ones where, you know, they had the skills and for whatever reasons on that day, it didn't come together for them. And now it's another four years that you have to wait before you get that shot again. And you may never mm. ever have that shot again. So when I see that, I, I feel a real kick in the gut, and that to me is a failure. And so what do you do? What do you learn from that mm. with any failure, or actually any process? Going back and reflecting on what was done, why it was done, and what the outcome ended up being is a critical piece to both what an athlete does in terms of their training, but what we do as, as scientists and or as a sport performance professional. What were the steps that we took to get to this point? What might we have done differently? Try to dissect and understand mm. what led to the quote unquote failure. I put failure in quotes because at the end of the day, there are things you can control and there's things that you can't control, mm. right? And sometimes that performance on the field of play, you're competing against other people who are equally as talented and, and want to win as well. Nothing's ever a given. It's why you play the game. Yeah. Right? Trying to figure out how the next time the collective we as the team around the athlete 
put he or she in the position to really have the greatest chance to achieve peak performance and realize their dream. Right. So that, when you bring up failure, there's several key instances that jump to mind of just the disappointment that comes from not achieving or underperforming on a given day that, that stick with me mm. and that I never want to relive again. So the motivation is there to try to not have to ever deal with that. I could imagine it just hits a little harder when it's affecting or you're seeing it lived out in someone else. A lot of times on the podcast, we talk about not getting papers accepted or grants and those feel like blows to the ego, but it's different when you're seeing somebody else affected by that and feeling like you could have done better. But I, I really like your approach of taking a step back and thinking through things and thinking through each step you took to get there and how you can make it better the next time. I feel like that's probably the only way to keep growing and moving forward and to try to take that into something more positive. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> Well, before we ask our last question, how can people learn more about you or what you do? I'm sure people are really, really excited. You know, we haven't really talked to anyone who works so close with the Olympics for and So how can people learn more about this? say that there's probably a couple of avenues. One, you can watch the Olympics and learn more about the athletes and the sports that are being contested during the summer and winter Olympic Games. Fingers crossed and all stars aligning, like we're going to actually have a situation that we haven't had in quite some time where we've got two Olympic Games coming up yeah. back to back. So yeah. the summer games in Tokyo starting in July and then the winter games right on the heels of that starting in February of 2022. So tune in and, and watch. And then don't be afraid to Google a sport that you don't know much about or Google an athlete. There's a tremendous amount of information actually out there and the awareness of the, some of the smaller known Olympic sports that don't get much publicity outside of the periods of time when the games are actually being contested. Learn about a, a sport like biathlon and it's not swimming and running or running and cycling yeah. it's cross-country skiing and, and shooting i mean and, and what some of these these sports are like and i would also say paralympics don't be afraid of the paralympics either mm. and i say that kind of tongue-in-cheek because it's an area and it's something that most people aren't familiar with and yeah it's not part of what you've grown up watching but mm. there's tremendous athletes and there's tremendous sports and yeah great stories and great athletes and great performances coming out of the Paralympic Games and those athletes as well. I would also direct you to the Team USA website and that is where the stories and the content if you want to learn more about our sport performance efforts as well as what's happening in other aspects of the organization learn about athletes and what they're doing throughout the course of the year both from a performance standpoint but also behind the curtains we're going to call them like special interest stories but the the non-sport side of athletes and getting to know a little bit more about them as well that, that's all there and i would encourage you to dig a little bit deeper mm. and finally if there is something that really your interest, go out and try it. There's a lot of sports that may fly under the mainstream radar, but there's a judo club probably there in Palo Alto that someone could go and try judo if it's if it's yeah. of interest yeah. or 
taekwondo or a swim club and get lessons. I mean, beauty of the Olympic sports and the Paralympic sports is that they're available. Mm. I know that I'm that this probably isn't true across the board, but you can find opportunities to do them if you know a little bit about them and do a little bit of research. You can find a place to play tennis or boccia or kind of do those things. Right. And even see like local competitions and do and start to immerse yourself in that. I mean, I love trying new things, but you're obviously like never great to start, but fun to just try it. And and you were saying how your experience with swimming maybe gave you a, a better insight and perspective when you're working with swimmers. And so that would also kind of be a little bit of empathy building too, I think with biomechanists, if you're working with athletes doing a sport, you know, why don't you go out and try that sport? And then, yep. you know, that'll put a little different perspective on the types of uh, insights and advice you're giving. A hundred percent agree with you, Melissa. <laughs> Go out and try curling if you really want yeah, a fun time. Yeah, I was going to say, I want to try curling. <laughs> I've never curled in my life, but, but I feel like I mean, that was the one that came to mind. And that's the other That's the other piece is like some of these, a lot of these sports could be like tremendously fun. Yeah. It's not just about learning about sport. There's a social component and there's a health and fitness component to a lot of them as well. Definitely. When you say there's a sports component, a social component, the other day I was out for a run and I passed a group of kids with their gym teacher outside. And and all I heard was him say, you know, the best thing I can teach you here on this field is sportsmanship. And I was like, oh, that's a good gym teacher. Well, our last question and something that is always really fun for us to hear is uh, what are you most excited about for the future of the Olympics and athletics? In terms of looking to the future, there's there's a lot of things to be excited about. Now, I guess I'll talk first as a sports scientist. Technology is accelerating at such a rapid pace. We're able to do things today that we weren't able to do even a couple of years ago in terms of athlete measurement and monitoring, like 3D motion tracking and markerless motion tracking our capabilities that continue to grow, the suite of wearable technologies that are available to provide behind the scenes or hidden insights into what's going on on an athlete during performance. And it goes beyond just measuring heart rate or sleep, but monitoring now metabolites or glucose, Mm. blood glucose, or, or things that are happening physiologically, where again, you can take that look inside an athlete and really help put things around them to maximize their performance. You know that you go hypoglycemic or blood glucose dips in a, for an endurance athlete after 30 minutes. Well, that's going to guide and dictate the hydration stat strategies and the refueling strategies that you employ in a marathon or a, right. or a long cross-country skiing race. And so it's really exciting peeling back the onion, I guess, is uh, kind of all those factors. And you go from looking at sport or a, a sport, performance in a sport as a whole to really getting specific to what makes Melissa work at her best and perform at her best and how that's different from what makes me work and what is needed for me to perform at my best. So the ability to kind of individualize more and more to the specific needs of the actual athlete is really what's groundbreaking and exciting because when you think about it, every athlete is an individual case study and no one is like anybody else. So mm. really want to try to find the ways to optimize health and performance at the individual athlete. Yeah. I think that we're also going to see kind of as technologies evolve, athlete training modalities. I mean, you've seen the movement to 
almost gamify some sports and in cycling there's companies like Zwift and you see it in rowing where you can compete in virtual competitions or wow. almost like it's almost like an esport landscape where not only can you have fun and engage with people around the globe but there's actually a, a, a training benefit a skills transfer that goes from the e-world out onto the physical space. So as you're learning to be a better cyclist by racing in Zwift, you're also increasing your physical and physiological capacities for when you when you go out on the road. And I think that we'll see a continued evolving of esport or the gaming type of virtual landscape, both for the athlete, but then also as the fan. I mean, it's not the space that we necessarily spend a lot of time in as a sport performance people, but imagine the ways in which a fan is going to be able to digest or ingest sport performances and events kind of going forward, potentially even being able to right sit on your couch with a VR headset and be sitting next to your brother who happens to be on the other side of the world right. and you're watching the game together as if you were right there in the stadium. That's only one facet, but yeah. when we get to the, I'm really excited when we get to the LA 28 games, which is the next home summer Olympic games for Team USA. I expect that it'll be unlike anything that we experience today, both as an athlete or a fan. Things are accelerating so rapidly. That just makes my imagination go all over the place. Thinking about, I could be at home riding my bike in the Tour de France or something. <laughs> Even trying to keep up with athletes that are competing. Yeah, I think that's a great point in, in making it more accessible. And I also really like your point of just really understanding what works best for the individual yep. and that's something that really fascinates me and, and I try to do in my own life. But it was different when, as an athlete when, you know, that is their life and um, must be so interesting to have access to all of these cool wearables and technologies and really be able to learn so much about yourself in that way. So we're really excited for both of those things too. So thanks for bringing those to our attention. And thank you for chatting with us about all of your amazing experiences. It's been really fun to learn what your work is like and learn more about you. Okay. I appreciate the opportunity. So thanks for reaching out and spending time with me. Hope that something I said resonates with, with you or with, with your viewers. But um, yeah, it's been <laughs> great to get to know you better and to have this opportunity to talk about the work that I do at the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. So thank you. Yeah, thank you. Well, you're making us want to go out and play some sports. So I feel like that'll happen. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. My job is done. <laughs> Well, thanks again to Scott for such an awesome interview. And now we have some research fails for you. Well, more just like fails. More just, fa yeah, the <laughs> fails in general. Fails in life kind of bleed into fail in research, so. Yeah, that's yeah. <laughs> Research fails. Yes, The first is a fail from a trip Melissa and I took, which was actually, the trip itself was great. We went on mm -hmm. a really nice hike. Mm -hmm. We had a lot of fun. We ate some good food. And on the way back, we decided to stop at a gas station for gas and a little gas for ourselves, which was ice cream. Yes. Um, the most important fuel. <laughs> most important fuel. I mean, I was so excited. Melissa was like, um, let's get Ben and Jerry's. And I was like, what gas station has Ben and Jerry's? And then sure enough. Yeah. There yeah, was ben some and Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> so, My favorite. So we each get our pints because obviously we're not going to share. Um, and yeah, we need a whole pint. We need a whole pint. <laughs> and we each get a plastic spoon from the gas station, you know, the little ones that come in the plastic wrap. And we're sitting in Melissa's car all excited to eat our ice cream. And I see Melissa open her pint and she takes her first little scoop with her plastic spoon. 
and literally it just catapults yeah. out. Yeah, because the ice cream was too hard, and then and the I got spoon was too the spoon. soft. The spoon was too soft, and it basically just flung the ice cream across the car, and and, so, <laughs> and I was like, "Oop!" And I laughed and was like, "Oh, Melissa, what?" A, yeah, what? Hannah was making fun of me. <laughs> what and then, a noob! In a in a turn of events. Hannah goes to eat her ice cream and does the exact same thing. <laughs> and I make the exact same noise, and we both just look at each other and die laughing. <laughs> and it was it was the best moment. So it, I think the lesson there is when you fail or see someone else fail, um, make friends with them. Yeah, laugh together, laugh because together. you're probably going to make that same mistake yeah. one day. <laughs> <laughs> and I did. Or three seconds later. Mm. Yeah. Um, Melissa, do you have a fail to share with us? Um, I have a fail. Um, so I've been talking, I think, about my fails with, like, injuries lately, like, with my hip and having that surgery. And then recently I was at, um, <laughs> I was hanging out with friends and someone started doing gymnastics. We were, we were in the grass, we were outside, and, uh, we started doing handstands and I used to be a gymnast, so I was like, okay, I'm gonna do handstands with you and then we in the were, grass in the grass and we took it up a notch we're doing cartwheels we're doing one-arm cartwheels and then I thought I really needed to be a one-upper and could do an aerial which is a no-arm cartwheel which I mean I could do as a gymnast but it's been many a years since I've <laughs> been a gymnast and I also was never allowed to do gymnastics in the yard at the risk of getting hurt Mm. Um, and the grass was wet because we had just gone in the lake and then we got out and uh, I tried to do an aerial, slipped and uh, hyperextended my elbow and totally ruptured my UCL. So I had to have a UCL reconstruction, Tommy John. So it's really common in baseball players, but it's also really common in gymnasts, which I didn't know. Oh. Um, And I have hyperextended my arm many times in gymnastics, um, but never, never popped off my ligament so (laughs) so this has been frustrating and I I play softball and volleyball so I decided to just have the reconstruction and now I'm a few weeks out and into it was two days after I finished PT for my hip so I at least I already knew the physical therapy center so well and had my PT and she's uh now we've moved on to my upper extremities and I've really gained empathy for all sorts of injuries and chronic pain this year your PT was probably so excited because she didn't want you to leave because we become friends (laughs) we're gonna have one more um therapy session where I was going to do Olympic um like lifting training with her Mm. and when I saw her she was like yeah I wondered why you never came back for that session and I was like well I was coming back for something else and now we can keep hanging out for a few more months (laughs) so anyway we wanted to turn this into a PSA that you really shouldn't be doing yard gymnastics as an adult as an adult, or uh, ever, even as or a gymnast, ever, right? or ever, yeah, it's you best to just never do it, um, especially if you're accident prone. Um, but in particular, as we're getting older, we really need to respect the limitations of our of bodies. our bodies. <laughs> and that is our PSA. <laughs> well, thank you all for listening to the episode, our great conversation, and that PSA. I mm. hope that it changes your life. Yeah, and saves you an injury. thank you to the international society of biomechanics for their support of boom thank you to peter washington for all the amazing music and sounds you hear and if you want to submit a research fail a person 
to interview, get involved in any way, just send us an email at biomechanicsonourminds at gmail.com, or you can follow us at Twitter at biomechanicsoom, or on Instagram at biomechanicsonourminds. And like us if you can. Definitely like, subscribe, and share all of the episodes. <gasps> Give us five stars on, I mean, rate us five stars. <laughs> rate us five stars. <laughs> Give us five stars, okay? All of on, the stars. On iTunes. Um, because I don't know why, but everyone says that that helps the podcast in some way. So please do that. If and you, we need help. If you care about that. <laughs> we need help. My arm's broken. <laughs> <laughs> We are one arm short. We are one arm short, so we need your support. <laughs> that rhymed. That's great. <laughs> Melissa should make PSAs. Uh, I'm Melissa. And I'm Hannah. Biomechanics <laughs> off our minds! <laughs> We're in person! We can do it together! So we did it together! That was the best! Oh my it's god, it's so been long. so long. Uh, Bless. Bless everyone, and I hope that you get to be in person with the people that you love, too.